calling all Minute Maniacs, Second Psychos, and Epoch Enthusiasts. It's that time of year again. Hey, remember how we were going to have a great time at TimeCon 2020? (laughs) Well, as we all know, time didn't quite work out the way we expected. But let's look to the future Future. with TimeCon 2021's official product, the Everyday Q&A Page-A-Day Calendar, courtesy of our friends Jonathan Oaks of Oaks Media Group and Trivial Warfare, and our good friend Katie Sikelsky of The Inkling, with questions submitted by you, the listener. Yes. So get yourself to TriviaCalendar.net, or you can go to the Oaks Media Group page, that's oaksmediastore.com, and you can get the products there. Um, and right now, there's a, a 20% discount if you pre-order. Ooh. So to get 20% off each calendar order, you can just get in there and get your discount. Great for gifts for Christmas. Oh my gosh. Or Hanukkah, or just for fun. Just you know? for fun. You should have one for your office yep. and one for your home, yes. so that when you're working from either place... <laughs> You can access your calendar. Exactly. Because unfortunately, we're still in 2020, but not for much longer. Yeah. And you won't be in 2020 when you have the Everyday Q&A 2021 trivia calendar. Pick up yours today. Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. It is now the last week in October. It's it's, oh, it's not called October oh, I'm anymore. I'm sorry. Lauren? It's Guest-tober. Guest-tober. And no, you were not... Um, hearing things or thinking things wrong or your feed wasn't like messed up somehow we never came up with like a song or a sound effect i don't think we could we just can't beat what guest timber was last year so yeah Yeah. guest tober sorry it's just sorry yeah i mean maybe next year we'll maybe in a full calendar year when it's guest vember because it seems like we're just doing it through the fall We'll have, you know, like a song or whatever. So um, sorry about that, everybody. That guest-tober is just met with the sound of pure mm. and perfect silence. But you know what? It's completely bounced out by the excellence of all of our guests. Oh, my gosh. One. We have had some incredible guests. Primo guests. And I would say we have the, I would make the argument, the primo of them all. Tonight. Tonight. Joining us. All the way from Canada. Canada, the greatest of countries. We have Hannah McIntyre. Hello, Hannah. Hello. How are you guys? <laughs> We're excellent. We're so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming yeah. on. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Hannah um, is on an internet forum that my husband happens to be on and they <laughs> knew each other from that. And mm-hmm. then she was like, oh, well, he told me I should just email you guys because I want to do an episode. And we were like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This Please. is perfect. And yeah, and it worked out really again. well. Yeah, absolutely. Hannah is also a Jeopardy champion. Uh, yes, I believe I have heard this. So uh, I am in the presence of greatness. <laughs> virtually. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so you can believe anything she tells us tonight. Is pure and perfect fact. Mm-hmm. So That's true. That's mm-hmm. absolutely true. Good. And you know what the best part about being a Jeopardy champion is? Like this doesn't apply to Julia anymore, but... I can never, ever lose an argument with my husband, <laughs> ever. You're like, oh, yeah? Were you on Jeopardy? Mm, nope. Yeah. Exactly. As a Jeopardy champion, <laughs> let me just say. 
Is it like we could turn that into something like Jeopardy splaining or <laughs> Jay splaining? Jay splaining. Jay splaining. It's pretty like good. That. Yes, I, I good. absolutely take it to obnoxious levels. You should. You're a Jeopardy. <laughs> you deserve you it. Do it. You deserve it. Exactly. <laughs> so besides being a Jeopardy champion, Hannah. Why don't you tell tell our uh, listeners a little bit more about yourself? Yes, please. Well, uh, I'm an author, so I write cozy mysteries full time. And actually, in the latest one, which is releasing tomorrow, the murder weapon was inspired by one of Lauren's episodes (gasps) about poisons that I listened to for the first time a few weeks ago. Oh, my God. That is the greatest honor that has ever been bestowed upon me. Thank you so much, Hannah. That's amazing. I love that you write cozy mysteries because I love Love. cozy mysteries. Awesome. Uh, Well, if you have ever read anything by Samantha Silver, you were reading one of my books. Get out. That's so great. That's so great. Hannah, I am blown away. That's awesome. I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to look it up in the library next. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I used to work at a little bookstore called Schmarns and Bubble, and uh, I used to sit, shelve a lot in both mystery and sci-fi and romance, which is a whole nother beast. Oh, yeah. <sighs> it's, it's a dark place sometimes, but <laughs> we won't get into it. Um, so, <laughs> so, yes, definitely check out Hannah's books. Samantha AKA Silver. Samantha Silver's books <laughs> available wherever fine books are sold. Um, yeah, Amazon. Really. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, Schmarns and Bobel. You know, it might be there too. One, they're to they're not. Oh, they're not? Oh. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> almost, all of, almost all of my books are exclusive to Amazon. Oh. I have like one, two series on Schmarns and Bobel <laughs> and like other bookstores, but almost all of them are actually Amazon exclusive. Hey, that's great. That's Easy access. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. how you get the the written word out there. Yeah. Um, so, Hannah, what uh, what topic are you going to be talking to us about today? Well, my topic today is called "All Roads Lead to Rome: The Roman Empire." This is wonderful because we've actually had some requests. Yes, for this t- this topic and. Neither of us have been able to bring ourselves, <laughs> have been, have mustered up enough courage. I mean, mine's because I don't think I can, pr- I can do the pronunciations justice. Oh, see, now that's bullshit. Oh, because, my pronunciation, <laughs> yeah. because it's not Italian, my it's Latin. My pronunciations will probably be bad, so don't worry. <laughs> yeah, that didn't stop Hannah, <laughs> as I have never done a, a Roman episode either, so I don't know why I'm up here on my high horse. But anyway... <laughs> Um, thank you for this. I'm so excited. Please, Hannah, whenever Take you get away. All right. Well, the Roman Empire was the post-Republican period of ancient Rome. The generally accepted dates of the Roman Empire are from 27 BC to 476 AD, although I'll talk about some of the differing opinions about the exact dates later. I want to start off by laying some of the groundwork of how Rome operated before we get into the Roman Empire itself. The city and kingdom of Rome was mythologically founded around 750 BC, with 753 BC being the most commonly accepted date. It was founded by Romulus, the city's namesake, and his brother Remus, who were nursed by a she-wolf after being abandoned on the banks of the river Tiber. 
Romulus ended up killing his brother during a dispute over which of the seven hills to build the new city on and became the first king of Rome. Oof, what a way to start. (laughs) Yeah, just, you know, as you do, murder your brother over, like, what hill you want to build your city on, like, normal things. Normal (laughs) Italian things, I would say. (laughs) Yeah, that's (laughs) that's true. Mm Mm-hmm. But so the Roman kingdom was the earliest period in Roman history when seven kings ruled before it became a republic. So in 509 BC, the monarchy was overthrown and the Roman Republic was established. The majority of the former king's functions were passed on to two men named consuls who were elected to term of one year and could be prosecuted after their consulships ended if they abused those powers. Ooh, I like that. Mm, yeah, that's a little, fair. little yeah, check and a balance yeah. right there. Yeah, exactly. And under the Republic, Rome also began the practice of assigning dictators. <laughs> Basically, if things got so hairy that they were like, nah, we can't risk multiple dudes working to solve this problem, just let one guy decide everything so it all gets done, they could choose a person to be a dictator for six months. For six months? See, yeah, that's, six I, months. that's max dictator, I think. You know? It, it, yeah, like it, it it was their choice. And also if whatever the dictator was chosen to carry out, like usually it was war, like somebody oh, yeah. was fighting or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, if that finished earlier than the six months period, the dictator was actually expected to then be like, okay, that's it. I'm done. And just like resign their dictatorship. <laughs> okay. That's also something that the Italians are really good about is giving up power. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And they were actually fairly common until the end of the Second Punic War, which is the one with Hannibal and the elephants, Mm -hmm. and actually did work pretty well. Oh, good. The Roman Republic was basically constantly at war during this time, since it went from essentially being a city sitting on a bunch of hills to being invaded by Gauls. Then they took over the entire Italian peninsula, and then they defeated Carthage over the course of the three Punic Wars, then they conquered all of modern-day Greece, and finally they had three different slave revolts, with the last one being the one with Spartacus (laughs) that everyone knows about. And so obviously that much war and that much rapid expansion meant there was like unrest in the air and it opened the door to a lot of military leaders to make their mark in the world, which is where we're going to start our main story about the empire. Julius Caesar was never an emperor of Rome and died under the Roman Republic and not the Roman Empire. Mm. But you cannot start talking about the Roman Empire without first talking about my boy, JC. (laughs) So when you say JC, let's just clarify, you're not talking about Jesus Christ. I am not. She's also not thinking about about JC from... J.C. Chazé. Yes. Yes. From NSYNC. Yes. No. Not talking about him. Although. Also not him. But but close. But close, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was the good looking one, I thought. (laughs) I was all about Nick Carter. But that's a backstreet boy. (laughs) Justin Timberlake was NSYNC. There you go. Yeah, that's it. I know my 90s boy bands. (laughs) (laughs) So Julius Caesar was born in 100 BC to a high ranking family in the Roman Republic. However, his uncle Marius was involved in a civil war with Sulla in 88 BC, which Marius lost, and Caesar's titles and inheritance were stripped from him, so he basically had to start over. 
He originally was a priest of Jupiter, but when that title was taken from him, he became a legal advocate and was known for his exceptional oratory combined with impassioned gestures and a high-pitched voice, which I always figured Julius Caesar would have like a low voice with good gravitas. But that knows. (laughs) I mean, yeah, with a lot, you got a lot of, um, you know, it's, there's a lot of, room up there for the for the sound waves to bounce around but uh, from what i understand like people are so used to the assumption that powerful people have deep voices mm-hmm. right um even uh even women are supposed to have deep okay. voices who are in power it's just like it's a biological thing that the deeper the voice the more powerful you are the more like uh virile you are or whatever mm. um but apparently like a lot of famous leaders like Julius Caesar and apparently Lincoln had like kind of high voices <laughs> and oh, people were fine with it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, this I, guy did a few things. worked for him. <laughs> so now my favorite Julius Caesar story is from a few years later when he was crossing the Aegean Sea. He was captured by pirates who demanded a ransom of 20 talents of silver. Caesar told them they weren't asking for enough and demanded that they change the ransom to 50 talents instead. Then after the ransom was paid, Caesar raised a fleet of men, pursued and captured the pirates and imprisoned them. He had them crucified as he had promised he would in captivity and the the pirates had taken the promise as a joke and then he decided that because he's such a nice guy, he slit their throats first before crucifying all of them as a sign of leniency. <laughs> so again, pettiness, a very Italian trait. <laughs> yeah, that is some that is some You're deep. Like, Wait a second, I'm worth way more than that. How dare yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love how that was his immediate reaction. You haven't asked for nearly enough money. <laughs> But so Caesar was elected consul in 60 BC, and along with two other political giants at the time, Crassus and Pompey, became part of what would become known as the First Triumvirate. After his year as consul was over, he became governor of Cisalpine and Transalpine Gaul, which is basically like Gaul on this side of the Alps and Gaul on the other side of the Alps, okay. with the, the side being Italy and then the other side, Transalpine Gaul, being the other side of the Alps from Italy, as well as Illyricum, which was basically southeastern Europe. This gave Caesar control of four legions, which he used to conquer a lot of Gaul. He managed to take most of modern France, some bits of modern Germany, and dipped his toes into modern Britain, but was driven out of there pretty quickly. Mm. The most famous of the chiefs he defeated was Vercingetorix. While this was happening, however, the Triumvirate alliance quickly deteriorated. Crassus died while on military campaign against Parthia, and it's rumored that being the richest man in Rome, the Parthians had molten gold poured down his throat after his death. (gasps) But that is likely not true (laughs) on the bright side, because that is horrifying. That's horrible. Like, at least he was already dead. Was it like as a punishment or was it like a mummification type thing? I think it was kind of just like, oh, you're so rich, but like all this gold can't help you now. Crassus was like insanely, insanely rich. Like he had so much money and it was all gained during like most of it was gained during like terrible things. Oh, sure. Like 
He would literally, like, he would have his slaves set people's house on fire, and then he would go up to the guy whose house is on fire and be like, I have crews of firefighters. Do you want them to put this fire out? And they'd be like, and the owners would be like, yes, I do. And he'd be like, okay, Pay we'll me. sell your property for, like, no money, or I'm not going to put the fire out. Oh and so gosh. then his, the guy would either give him the money and he would take their property and then put out the fire and keep the property <laughs> or he would just let it burn. Oh my God. Like he was not a good dude. No. I remember At- that from our fire, from our great fires. Oh, episode right. Yeah. We covered a little bit of the history of firefighting. Yeah. It was like, yes. what an insane like way to <laughs> make operate. <some> cash. <laughs> so let's be honest. If anyone deserves to have molten gold poured down their throat after they died, it was probably Crassus. Yeah, but it's yeah. probably not a true story. But it's still a it's still a good one. Uh, Pompey, who had been married to Caesar's daughter but was widowed when she died in childbirth, remarried the daughter of one of Caesar's political opponents as well, which was like a big Oof, oh, we're not oh, yeah. friends anymore sign. So Pompey was elected sole consul and ordered Caesar to disband his army and return to Rome, where Caesar assumed, probably very correctly, that he would be prosecuted. Mm -hmm. So Caesar did obey the whole return to Rome part, but ignored the disband your army bit. Mm. He famously crossed the Rubicon River near modern-day San Marino with one legion, and that's where the saying, like, crossing the Rubicon, like, that's the point of no return. Like, he crossed it with his army, therefore... We going to war. (laughs) And so Pompey fled to Spain and Julius Caesar went after him, leaving his best bro, Mark Antony, in charge of Rome. Caesar Caesar then spent the next couple of years traveling around fighting Pompey's army in Europe and Africa before eventually Pompey was assassinated and his head brought to Caesar in Egypt. (sighs) During this time, Cleopatra and her half-brother, husband, and co-ruler began a civil war over who would rule Egypt. Caesar sided with Cleopatra, the two became romantically involved, and they completely crushed her brother because Cleopatra was super freaking smart and Julius Caesar was super freaking good at controlling armies. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite Cleopatra stories is like she had herself rolled up in a carpet and then like brought into Caesar's palace as like a surprise. Which <laughs> is like, ha ha! Yes. <laughs> look at how look I'm at this here. sexy surprise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That is a great story. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, during all of this, Caesar kept being elected consul of Rome, and eventually they gave him a 10-year term as dictator, which was the first time that had ever happened. Uh Because Caesar kept basically forgiving most of his enemies while he was on campaign, he actually had very few enemies in the Senate, and there was no real serious public opposition to him as he gathered more and more power. At that time, the Roman army was insanely strict and punishments were really freaking heavy. Like, if you fell asleep while on night watch, your punishment was execution. Like, that's it. (laughs) There's no second chance, just straight up execution. And if your group did something bad, they would be decimated, which meant they would line up and one in every 10 men would be, like, taken out of line and killed. So compared to those standards, Caesar was actually compared to be very merciful. He won a ton of popularity points with basically every level of the population by going, hey, maybe the immediate reaction to the slightest wrong shouldn't be execution. I'm going to go with the extremely new idea that letting people live and having them be loyal to me for sparing their life is a better way to go. Wow, (laughs) revolutionary. Yeah, absolutely (laughs) revolutionary at the time. 
So he was actually really angry when he found out that Pompey had been murdered. He wanted to make a big show of forgiving his old friend and inviting him to help continue to build Rome into a bigger and better state. And he ordered that Pompey's body get a full funeral. Like, I cannot stress enough how weird and out of the ordinary this concept of not killing all your enemies immediately was at the time. (laughs) Yeah, so no wonder he was so popular because they were like, oh, you mean I can live? Oh, my God. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And it's amazing that he was like the first guy to come up with this as like a way to get people on your side. (laughs) So once he returned to Rome, Caesar implemented a number of changes, the biggest one being the adoption of the sun-based Egyptian calendar over the existing moon-based Roman calendar. Mm. He was the one who instituted years that would last 365.25 days and introduced the concept of the leap year. The Julian calendar officially began on January 1st, 45 BC, and of course, the month of July, when all the cool people are born, is named after him. I agree. The coolest people are born in July. Wait, when? what day were you born in July? Uh, the 29th. Nice. I was born and on the 6th. Ellie is the first. Nice. And Ellie is the first, so of course, all the nice. coolest people yes. are born in July. All the cool people. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I liked you. <laughs> Although Caesar didn't actually name the month after himself, July was known as Quintilis, fifth month, since in Rome the years always started in March, and August was Sextilis, or six months, and the names would change to Julius and Augustus after Caesar's death during the reign of Augustus, Mm. who he named one of the months after himself. Of course. (laughs) I mean, I would do the same. Yeah, absolutely. Like, if you have the chance to name a month after yourself, you do it. Yeah. Anyway, Julius Caesar basically began acting like more and more of a dictator in the sense that we know it today. A lot of his actions were designed to unite the Roman Republic, but at the same time, he was consolidating power. One of the number one tenets of the Roman Republic was that Rome would never again be ruled by a king. Like, that was one of their, like, deepest core beliefs in Mm -hmm. Rome. They're like, we're better than that. We're not a (laughs) kingdom like those other places. We're a republic. And... Like, boy, was Caesar ever testing the limits of that. Like, (laughs) Roman loved their oracles and having prophecies stated Mm. and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And a few days before he was murdered, Caesar kind of tested out the waters a bit with that. He went to the Senate and he was like, hey, guys, so this priest that we all like and respect said he had a dream where I had a crown and was made king of Rome. And isn't that so silly, guys? (laughs) But, like, seriously, what do you think? And at that point... Even the Romans, who love their priests, were like, no, Rome can never have another king. And Caesar was like, yeah, that's totally what I said, too. What a dumb priest. (laughs) Am I right? So, like, seriously, dude had been made dictator in perpetuity. They, like, added to his 10-year term and made him dictator in perpetuity, like, a month before his assassination. He had stacked the Senate and basically every other public office with people who were his allies And I don't know why he was just so intent on needing to be a king. But anyway, seeing what was happening, a bunch of senators got together and decided Caesar had to be killed in order to save the Republic. Hmm. So March 15th, 44 BC, Julius Caesar went to the Senate. Mark Antony had been warned about the plot the night before and tried to stop the assassination, but he was kept away and was unable to warn Caesar. 
Sixty men participated in the stabbing, and Julius Caesar was stabbed 23 times. Only one of those wounds was actually fatal, too, and I am so shocked that all these rich old dudes barely managed to stab the 65-year-old guy to death. <laughs> like, seriously, if you're going to murder someone, put some effort in. Like, one fatal wound from 60 guys is a little pathetic. Yeah, like, put your back into it. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, it, it shouldn't have been just one wound. <laughs> Anyway. Sharpen your knives yeah. first, man. One. Make yeah. sure it's sharp. One, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you you know these were Senate dudes that had never actually, like, done anything with their lives. <laughs> they had no idea how to kill somebody. Yeah. It's like... But so anyway, in a surprise to basically everyone, it turned out Julius Caesar named his nephew Octavian as his heir instead of Mark Antony. Heirs in the Roman Republican Empire weren't necessarily your next to kin. They were who you wanted to carry on your name and legacy and give your money to. Anyway, Octavian was young, only 18, kind of sickly, and had basically no military experience, which is why it was such a surprise that he was named heir. Put that to kid be- in charge. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Can't yeah. even hold his big like- bulbous head up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And funnily enough, there is actually a thing in Julius Caesar's will where if Octavian had died before Julius Caesar, everything that Julius Caesar had actually passed to Brutus. Oh, wow. He really missed out. That's some bad, bad judgment right there. (laughs) He clearly had no idea. Yeah, none, none at all. So to begin with, Octavian joined forces with Mark Antony and a cavalry commander loyal to Caesar called Lepidus to create the second triumvirate. Most people know this triumvirate as Octavian, Mark Antony, and some other guy. Like, let's be honest. (laughs) And what was his name again? uh, Lepidus. 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 Okay, okay. Uh, The three of them went after the men who killed Caesar, most notably Brutus and Cassius, and they were finally defeated in 42 BC at the Battle of Philippi. Afterward, Mark Antony and Octavian went after each other. Mark Antony allied himself with Cleopatra, and this final civil war ended in 31 BC at the Battle of Actium and culminated with the suicides of Antony and Cleopatra in 30 BC. With all the other major players out of the way, this leaves Octavian by himself to take on the role of Roman Emperor. Mm. So one more note before we continue. Julius Caesar was deified the year following his death, becoming the first Roman citizen to become deified. And during the game celebrating his assumption as a god, a comet appeared in the sky known as Caesar's Comet, which is one of the most famous in the ancient world. Oh, interesting. I didn't know about that. Cool. Yeah. So, like, everyone was sad about his death that wasn't the guys that killed him, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, the guys that killed him basically expected there to be, like, cheering mm-hmm. and, like, people celebrating in the streets. And instead, like, news came out that Caesar had died and everyone just, like, went inside and shut their doors because they're like, we know what's coming and yeah. it's civil war. And like, they all loved Caesar. Like okay. the guys in the Senate were so out of touch. They did not realize <laughs> that Julius Caesar was seriously loved by like everybody. Yeah. He was the populist he, candidate. Yeah. Yeah, he absolutely. He was. And like, he did a lot for the poor people of Rome. Like he was known to, like he worked as a lawyer for them early on in his career, like through bits, like of his political career, he was in charge of games and stuff. And he always threw like, huge games which they loved 
people loved him. Like the mm-hmm. senators had no idea, but <laughs> they just like completely misread the population's yeah. opinion of Caesar. So back to Octavian. After the Battle of Actium, he returned to Rome, but he couldn't immediately take control of everything. I mean, given what had happened the last time, the Senate was pretty understandably nervous about immediately (laughs) handing sole power of Rome to one dude again. Sure, yeah. So Octavian just pretended he was super cool with not being in power, and the Senate just kept giving him more and more responsibility. Ultimately, while Caesar had been murdered, the entire system that allowed Caesar to consolidate power like he did weren't destroyed at all. Like, they cut off, like, they killed one of the symptoms, but they didn't actually cure anything. I see, I see. So Octavian kept being like, oh, shucks, I just couldn't really control all of Syria and Hispania and Egypt and Gaul. But I mean, if you really think I should, I'll do it. (laughs) Play the game, man. Yeah, yeah, he's got it. He knows. Oh, oh, yeah, he did. So the Senate kept giving him more and more control until finally it was really obvious that Rome was just in control of one guy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And in 27 BC, he was given the titles Augustus, which translates to the venerable, and princeps, or first citizen. And the Roman Empire was born, with Octavian now going by Augustus Caesar, the first Roman emperor, and the first emperor from what's now known as the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Mm. Some historians mark the beginning of his reign as being 31 BC after his victory at the Battle of Actium, but most agree on 27 BC when he took the title of Augustus. So Augustus, now that he's emperor, I'm going by his empirical name instead of Octavian, ruled for 40 years and is widely considered to be one of, if not the best emperor in Roman history. He nearly doubled the size of the empire, expanded the network of roads, founded the Roman postal service, and founded the Praetorian Guard. They're basically the Roman version of the Secret Service if the Secret (laughs) Service was also trying to assassinate presidents and regularly auctioning off the role of president to the highest bidder. (laughs) But we'll get to that later. (laughs) Sure, 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 sure. (laughs) Yeah, it's a totally normal thing. Augustus laid the groundwork for the 200 years that would come to be known as the Pax Romana, or Roman peace, which was, quite frankly, a freaking miracle after the Roman Republic, where they were constantly fighting other people, each other, or a combination of both at once. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The Pax Romana also refers to inward stability, as Rome still did spend basically this entire time period fighting people outside their borders, either in defense or expansion. Mm. So Augustus died in the year 14 AD, which is actually a bit of a miracle since he had been super sickly his entire life and pretty much nobody expected him to live that long. Yeah. (laughs) So he was succeeded by Tiberius, a member of the Claudian family, whose mother had divorced his father and married Augustus. So Tiberius was Augustus's stepson and the second member of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Okay. Tiberius was also forced by Augustus to divorce his first wife and marry Augustus's daughter, Julia, so the families were even more intertwined. Oh, jeez. So he married his stepsister? Yes, he did. Okay. Oh, cool. This this is not the weirdest relationship. Oh, no, no, no. The weirdest marriage relationship (laughs) that happens in this story. Just trying to map it out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... And a note on names. Roman emperors had like 8,000 names Mm -hmm. each. Like Tiberius, as we know him, was actually born Tiberius Claudius Nero. When he was adopted by Augustus, he took on the name Tiberius Julius Caesar, and he ruled as Tiberius Caesar Augustus. 
I'm only going to be giving their common names that we know them as because seriously, it just gets ridiculously confusing if I don't. And they all just have like different combinations of the same like six names. Mm -hmm. We're in a Dostoevsky novel. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) As a young man, Tiberius had a great military career and helped to extend the borders of the Roman Empire along the Danube and into modern day Germany. However, his foray into politics started off slightly less successful. He didn't have the same natural charisma and ability to sway people as Augustus, and the Senate quickly soured against him. Germanicus, his nephew and presumed heir, was much more populous than Tiberius, and when the young man died in 19 AD, likely by poisoning, Mm. the emperor was pretty rightfully a prime suspect with the idea that Tiberius poisoned Germanicus so his own son could take over. Uh, unfortunately yeah yeah. unfortunately in 23 AD Tiberius's own son died and after that Tiberius basically just went F this I don't (laughs) want to do it anymore yeah (laughs) I don't blame him (laughs) like a couple years later he retired to Capri permanently despite still being emperor and left most of the running of Rome to a man named Sejanus or Sejanus I don't know how to pronounce that (laughs) the head of the Praetorian Guard In a surprise to literally no one, Sejanus started immediately doing whatever he wanted, including purges of some of Rome's most prominent families. And gee, I wonder where all their gold, cash, and land ended up after they were all killed. Oh my god. Yeah. Of course, he then went too far and tried to actually overthrow Tiberius, who immediately had him and all his co-conspirators executed. Yeah, makes sense. He was like, I left you in charge, man. (laughs) Yeah. I just wanted to sit on my island. (laughs) On my beautiful (laughs) island in the Mediterranean Sea. God. I let you kill everyone else, and then you tried to kill me. Like, why you got to do me like that, Yeah, exactly. Jeez. (laughs) So you might think that this debacle would have made Tiberius go, hmm, maybe I shouldn't run away to Capri again and, you know, do my actual job of running one of the biggest empires in the world. But you would be wrong. (laughs) Tiberius went back to being a hermit and the Roman Empire continued to chug along basically because of the systems put in place by Augustus until 37 AD. Caligula was at Tiberius's villa when it was announced that the emperor had stopped breathing. Immediately, everyone around started hailing Caligula as emperor, since he was basically the only person who could have taken over at this point, until a moment later someone else came by and went, Oops, just kidding, folks. Tiberius is breathing again and regaining consciousness. (laughs) JK, everyone. JK, everything's fine. Just everything's fine. Yeah, it's okay. So at this point, everyone who had just hailed Caligula as emperor began to panic and flee the villa. Yeah. Fearing the wrath of the emperor for obvious reasons. Well, the new head of the Praetorian Guard, since the old one had been executed for treason, took advantage of the chaos to smother Tiberius in his bed. (gasps) Yes, that Praetorian Guard, the ones who exist entirely to protect the emperor. (laughs) As I said before, worst secret service ever. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, it's so complicated. Actually, time for Caligula to take over. Now, I'm not going to cover him very much because Lauren already did so in episode 139, Bootykins. It's very good. 
<laughs> I, I was waiting for that. I didn't know if I should leave a spot for you to interject with that. But basically, while well, he was hugely popular with the common people because he spent insane amounts of money on entertainment, everyone in the patrician class and the Senate freaking hated him. Mm. He was tyrannical, he was insane, and he was just straight up not a good person at all. Yeah, He ruled from 37 AD until he was murdered by... You guessed it, the Praetorian Guard in 4180 at the age of 29. Amazing. Now, there's a lot of stories out there about how Caligula was a pervert. <laughs> this is basically how you can tell if someone liked a dude or not in ancient Rome. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you wanted to ruin someone's reputation, you did it by claiming he was into weird sex stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, that was just the dumb thing. It worked every time. When Octavian and Mark Antony were in the middle of their civil war, Mark Antony went to the Senate and claimed, among other things, that Octavian had had sex with his uncle, Julius Caesar. It was obviously not true, but that was just how he speared someone's reputation. Yeah. So he might have had a sexual relationship with his sister, or it's possible the historians who wrote about him just hated him and made it up to make him look bad. Yeah, And exactly. basically all the historians being patricians hated him. So there was like nobody out there going, no, Caligula was not the greatest, but he also wasn't as gross as everyone says. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was like a big burn book. Yeah. I yeah. heard Caligula <laughs> did his sister. Well, I heard that Octavian had sex with his uncle. How does that even happen? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was basically it. Like historians were just making things up based yeah. on how much they liked people or not. And that continues through Italian history... <laughs> Until for centuries, for centuries, a, a long story tradition of Italians accusing each other of incest. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just see I, Lucrezia Borgia. Yeah, yes. Uh, and I, I'm not shitting on the Italians. I'm, I'm shitting on them with love. You know what I mean? Like, like Caligula yes. would do. <laughs> All right, I'll stop. I'll stop shitting on the Italians. <laughs> So anyway, after Caligula was murdered, the Praetorian Guard found Claudius, who was Tiberius's nephew and uncle to Caligula, in the palace and hailed him emperor. Claudius had been a sickly child who had a limp and a speech impediment and was essentially written off as ever being emperor material early in life because of this. His infirmary is probably also the only reason he survived the rest of the purges of his family since no one thought he was ever a serious threat to the throne and he also played up the idea of being a bit simple for just like self-preservation. Mm -hmm. The Senate held out for two days, refusing to declare him emperor, but eventually they changed their minds, and Claudius became the first Roman emperor born outside of Italy, as he was born in Gaul in Lugdunum, now known as Lyon, in France. Nice. So Claudius ended up being a good ruler overall. He managed to get Rome's finances back under control after Caligula decided to go all treat yo empire. He expanded the imperial bureaucracy to include freedmen, which the Senate did not appreciate, and he built a ton of new infrastructure across the empire, as well as conquering new territory, including Britain. Claudius's wife, Messalina, was part of a plot to overthrow him, and he had her executed, at which point he remarried Agrippina the Younger, his niece. Mm. Agrippina was ambitious and convinced Claudius to adopt her son, Domitius, who took the name Nero after the adoption. Oh. <laughs> I know that name. In 54 AD, Claudius died from poisoning, likely on Agrippina's orders. <laughs> 
Claudius had a son from his first marriage, Britannicus, and Agrippina likely worried that Claudius would name him his heir instead of going for Nero, so she nipped that in the bud by killing Claudius before he had a chance to change his will. <laughs> and we all know who becomes emperor next. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The fiddler. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the fiddler. <laughs> Nero was the fifth and last emperor in the Juli- Julio-Claudian dynasty, and his legacy is basically exactly what you would expect when you put a freaking 16-year-old boy in charge of one of the most powerful empires in the world. <laughs> like, spoiler alert, he sucked. <laughs> Agrippina the Younger tried to basically rule through her son to start with, but he was very quickly like, Mom, no, I can do this myself, and had her executed. <laughs> oh my god. And honestly, yeah. <laughs> and honestly, thanks to a couple good advisors Nero listened to, the first few years of his reign went pretty well, all things considered. But one of them died and the other retired, and things definitely went downhill from there. There were revolts in Britain, the first Jewish-Roman war, a costly war in Armenia to set up a buffer against Parthia. A plot against him led to huge purges of famous Roman families. He had his wife executed so he could marry his mistress that he later kicked to death. (laughs) Basically, Nero was a freaking train wreck in every single aspect of his life. (laughs) Kicking someone to death? That's the first I've ever heard of this. She was also pregnant. Oh, no. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. None of this story is good. (laughs) Just, it's not good. Uh, So despite this, contrary to popular belief, it's almost certain that Nero did not fiddle while Rome burned in 64 AD, as the historian who wrote that was solidly on record as being super anti-Nero. And also there's like separate evidence that he wasn't even in Rome when the city went up in flames. <laughs> mm. So it's, it was probably false. Also no but proof that he knew how to play the violin. Exactly. There's exactly. also that. Exactly. <laughs> that said, he did try blaming the fire on the Christians, which at that point were just a minor sect mm-hmm. and started construction on a new giant palace from land. He appropriated from the fire called the Domus Aurea or golden house that was, you guessed it, going to be made entirely of gold. Of course. Oh, no, this land. Oh, it's so oh, barren. Well, I should oh. build something there. Oh, I should build something pretty there to make everyone feel better about Yay! the place. <laughs> and only I'll get to live there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so basically... Funnily enough, the upper classes all hated Nero, but the common people actually loved him. Nero was super into acting in games at a time when being an actor was basically like the lowest, scummiest job you could ever do. Mm -hmm. So he would go into town and act in plays with the common people loved, but the upper classes saw him as completely embarrassing himself. (laughs) It would be kind of like if the president of the United States had like a trashy reality show or something equally unbelievable. You know what? Never mind. Bad example. Thanks. Thanks for that dig, Canada. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> I, it, it fits. It mm-hmm. fits. I couldn't resist. <laughs> anyway, in 68 AD, the army and the Praetorian Guard, see how they keep popping up? Mm-hmm. Well, they had enough. The legions from Spain and Gaul, as well as the Praetorian Guard, rose against Nero and he fled Rome, committing suicide, becoming the first Roman emperor to die by this method. 
With no one left in the Julio-Claudian dynasty to take the throne, we get our first true succession-triggered civil war. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. Those are always good. (laughs) But before we get to that, side note. I mentioned revolts in Britain during Nero's reign. One of these was by Boudicca, the wife of a Celtic chief who saw her husband murdered and her daughters raped by the Romans. She gathered members of her tribe and others and led them into rebellion, first burning the city of Camelodunum, now Colchester, before moving on to Londonium, now London, and burning that city to the ground as well. She was eventually defeated and poisoned herself to evade capture, but Boudicca led one of the most successful revolts in the history of the Roman Empire. Yeah, she was a royal badass. She was awesome. Yes, she was. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But now we go to 69 AD, also known nice. as the Year of the Four Emperors. I, li- I literally remember what year the Four Emperors are because I also <laughs> am then 12 years old. <laughs> I can't believe you said that before I did. <laughs> You got that in so quick. (laughs) I actually had it written down here that 69 is generally considered to be a nice number, (laughs) but not so much in this case. (laughs) After Nero was killed in 68 AD, Galba was the first one to take over, a military general who decided that killing everyone who didn't immediately accept him was the way to go. In a surprise to literally no one, the Praetorian Guard killed him on the 15th of January, 69 AD. Oh boy. Otho, the man who had bribed the Praetorian Guard to kill Galba, was immediately declared the new emperor and was expected to be much more just and fair and less stabby than his predecessor. <laughs> Unfortunately, another man named Vitellius also wanted to be emperor and marched his armies, the best legions in the empire, towards Italy. Otho suffered a terrible defeat, and then deciding that it was better for there to be stability than endless civil war, committed suicide. Mm. So the Senate named Vitellius the next emperor, and he sucked hard. (laughs) He made Nero look spendthrift, and within months had the whole empire at the brink of bankruptcy, ordering the execution of anyone who dared to suggest that maybe not spending all of the money was a good idea. Meanwhile, the man in charge of the legions in Egypt, Syria, and Judea, named Vespasian, he was hailed emperor by his own troops. He traveled to Alexandria and declared himself emperor, then took some of his legions and marched on Rome, fighting Vitellius's troops and completely crushing them. Vespasian's men captured Vitellius as he tried to flee and killed him, and Vespasian was pronounced emperor on December 21st of 69 AD, thus beginning the Flavian dynasty and ending the year of the four emperors. Man, that all happened in one year? (laughs) Damn. Yeah. (laughs) Shoot. Yeah. It gets messy when there's not (laughs) Mm -hmm. like a straight, okay, this guy is next. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Plus news, news took a while to travel yeah. too. Yeah. So <laughs> that's one way of doing it. Probably had no idea who was in charge if you lived in the outer <laughs> yeah, wilds way of out. the empire. That is true. So Vespasian was the first emperor to hail from an equestrian family, which is the second level of nobility before the senatorial class, and is famous for beginning the building of the Flavian Amphitheater, better known today as the Colosseum. Hmm. Ah, yes. When he died in 79 AD, his eldest son Titus took over, marking the first time that the emperorship had passed from father to son. Huh. So Titus only ruled for two years, but overall his reign was considered good. 
He was generous with aid after the eruption of Vesuvius in 79 AD, which destroyed the cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum, and the fire of Rome in 80 AD. He also saw the completion of the Colosseum, but died in 81 AD, with the dedication of the Colosseum being one of his last official acts as emperor. His brother Domitian took over, the last of the Flavian dynasty members. Domitian basically spent his entire life thinking he would never be emperor and hating the Senate. <laughs> As a result, most of the historical writers of the time wrote really negative stuff about him, but the reality is he was actually a pretty good ruler, and nowadays he's no longer considered the total failure he once was. <laughs> Unfortunately for everyone, having the entire Senate hate you is not great for your lifespan as emperor, and he was murdered by court officials in 96 AD after ruling for 15 years. Domitian was succeeded by one of his advisors, Nerva, who the Senate declared emperor the same day Domitian was killed. However, there's some evidence that the Senate may have done this on the orders of, you guessed it, the Praetorian, Praetorian Guard. Guard. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Damn these Every guys. time. Just every time. <laughs> Nerva being named emperor started what became known as the Nerva Antonine Dynasty, and the first five emperors from this dynasty, Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antoninus Pius, and Marcus Aurelius, are commonly known as the five good emperors, as named by Machiavelli. Oh, Aww. Sure. Yeah. yeah. They're the good emperors. They're the five good emperors. They the only are. one I've heard of and- is Hadrian. <laughs> and only because he has a wall. He's got that wall, yeah. He does have a wall. <laughs> and... Like, after that, it just goes, like, spoiler alert, super downhill from there. (laughs) That's a shame. Anyway, Nerva ruled for about two years, didn't do much, but he did name an heir before he died, Trajan. Trajan is important for a few reasons. For one thing, he presided over the largest military campaign in Roman history, and the empire was at the largest it would ever get territorially under him. Wow. Secondly, he was born in modern-day Spain in a province of the Roman Empire and not in the empire himself itself. Yeah. However, due to his parents' ancestry, because they belonged to a family from Umbria, he was technically a citizen of Rome and not a provincial. Oh. So he undertook a number of military campaigns, and on return from a successful campaign against Parthia, he had a stroke and died in 117 AD. So I want to talk about just how big the Roman Empire was at this point. So we'll start with Europe. All of the Iberian Peninsula, everything west of the Rhine and south of the Danube was part of the Roman Empire. So basically, all of modern France and Belgium, some of the modern modern Netherlands, southern Germany, and most of the Balkan. Mm-hmm. North of the Danube, they also controlled Dacia, which is most of modern Romania, and had client states in Jazyges, which is part of modern Ukraine, and Roxolani, another group of people who lived in modern Ukraine, north of the Danube. They also controlled all of Britain up to where Hadrian's Wall currently stands, which is pretty close to the modern border with Scotland. They also owned all of the Mediterranean islands like Cyprus and Malta. So yeah, in terms of landmass at this point, Rome controlled well over 50% of Europe. Mm, wow. Then we get into the Middle East. <laughs> they controlled all of modern Turkey, first of all. Also, all of modern Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, along with the very southern end of Russia, to about three quarters of the way up the Black Sea, and then across to the Caspian Sea. Oh my gosh. (laughs) 
from there, we go to the Euphrates and the Tigris or Mesopotamia. Rome controls both of these rivers all the way down to the Persian Gulf. Rome also controls all of the Mediterranean coast in the Middle East. Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan all belong entirely to Rome, as does the northwestern part of modern Saudi Arabia. Then we hit Africa. Oh my gosh. Rome <laughs> controls the entire eastern side of modern Egypt down into the northern parts of modern Sudan. On the western side of the Nile, they don't quite control all of modern Egypt, but still a pretty decent chunk of it. Mm -hmm. And from there, Rome controls anywhere from around 50 miles to 200 miles inland from the Mediterranean along the entire coast of the African continent. <laughs> wow. I had no idea that it was that far south. Like it was as far as northern Sudan. That's amazing. Yeah. Too big yeah, to yeah. fail. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Yep. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so all in all, the Roman Empire controlled 1.9 million square miles of land or 5 million square kilometers. In other words, it was freaking huge. Yeah. To give you an idea of how far it extended, if you went from the northern part of Britannia down to Aswan in modern Egypt, it would be like starting in northern British Columbia and finishing in southern Cuba. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Yeah, it was huge. And while the Mediterranean meant some travel was relatively quick, if you had to travel inland, it took a long time. Yeah. Right. Going from Jerusalem to London, for example, would take over a month. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. It was it was huge. So Trajan died, but on his deathbed, he named his nephew Hadrian as his heir. So Hadrian ruled from 117 AD from, to 138 AD and is most famous for his wall in yeah. modern northern England, which can still be visited today. He also turned heads in Rome by being the first emperor to wear a beard instead of being clean shaven. Ooh, watch out. Beard, yeah, he was he was a rebel. <laughs> Beards were considered to be gross and unkempt, but according to Plutarch, Hadrian did it to hide scars on his face, and it started a whole fad with emperors up until Constantine wearing beards regularly after Hadrian. His decision might also have been influenced by the facts that the Greeks saw beards as a symbol of wisdom, and Hadrian was very influenced by the Greeks, wanting to make Athens the cultural capital of the empire. Okay. Okay. Hadrian was also one of the most openly gay emperors, oh, hey. although not the first gay emperor. Mm, sure. It's also important to note, though, that Romans didn't consider people gay and straight the way we do today. Mm -hmm. And like, as long as the man took the dominant role in a relationship with another man, there was no perceived loss of masculinity. Mm -hmm. And like, that was that was just how it worked. Yeah. In fact, of the first fourteen emperors. 13 of them were known to have had relationships with men. Yeah, that so was also was, um, common in like in Europe for a very long time, for centuries, yeah. basically. Yeah, because uh, the medieval Christian church also had this kind of like unspoken rule thing with monks. It was like a winky okay. wink wink kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was how it worked in Rome. Um, but Hadrian was one of the few who is known to like exclusively have relationships with other men mm -hmm. and he died childless. Mm -hmm. So he traveled to almost every province and was widely considered to be a very good ruler. He did suppress the third and last of the three Jewish revolts known as the Bar Kokhba revolt. But apart from that, his reign was largely peaceful. 
Contrary to Trajan, Hadrian believed that the empire had gotten too large and that it was time to consolidate power and control what they had rather than to continually try and expand, hence decisions like the building of Hadrian's Wall to keep the Picts in Scotland out, mm. whereas Trajan might have gone, let's take over that too if he yeah. was still alive. <laughs> So he adopted Antoninus Pius as his heir in 138 on the condition that he adopt Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus as his heirs and died that same year. Mm. At this point, Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus were just too young to be emperor. Oh. Hadrian was like, nope, I know what happened when we let Nero do this. Like, <laughs> yeah. let's just give him a few years to grow up. <laughs> no more teen boys in charge yeah. of this. <laughs> The largest empire. empire. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And it was a good move. <laughs> Antoninus Pius reigned until 161, and in the true sign of a good leader, has virtually no scandals or anything fun to talk about at all. That's great. He's pious. He did have another wall built north of Hadrian's Wall in Britannia, but it was quickly abandoned and the troops moved back to Hadrian's Wall. <laughs> that one's known as the Antonine Wall. True to his word to Hadrian, when Antoninus Pius died in 161, his heirs were Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus, brothers whose father was Hadrian's nephew. Marcus Aurelius and Verus were the f first co-emperors, and surprisingly, it actually went really well, oh, which... Oh. Yeah. Technically, Marcus Aurelius was the senior, and he was treated as such. Marcus Aurelius was serious and stern, while Verus freaking loved to party, but <laughs> surrounded himself with enough smart people and still managed to rule well enough that there weren't any real problems. Unfortunately, the two were thrown into the deep end pretty quickly. There were invasion problems with both Parthia and in Upper Germany, and while Antoninus Pius had raised Marcus Aurelius alongside him to rule, he had done so almost entirely in Rome, and the new emperor had virtually zero military experience. <laughs> oh, Therefore, Ferus was the one chosen to go deal with Parthia, which he did pretty well. Unfortunately, he died in 169, likely from the Antonine Plague that ravaged the Roman Empire over the next decade. Marcus Aurelius ruled until his death in 180. These days, he's most commonly known for his meditations, which are short thoughts he wrote down daily in his journal about all sorts of topics. Huh, that's nice. So with Marcus Aurelius's death, we reach the end of the five good emperors, and for all intents and purposes, the end of most of the good emperors. <laughs> <laughs> I'm warning you, things start going downhill from here fast. <laughs> Towards the end of this, you're going to wish someone had just like stabbed the Roman Empire with a sword in the middle of the third century and put it out of its misery. This is just super depressing for a while. Aww. Luckily for everyone involved, I'm going to be skipping a lot of the emperors now because if I didn't, we'd be here for hours and honestly, <laughs> most of them don't even deserve to be remembered. <laughs> yes, that's right. I am judging these rulers of the ancient world while I sit here licking a bit of Oreo that fell on my shirt earlier. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> you deserve that Oreo. I did deserve that Oreo. <laughs> Now, you've heard of the Year of the Four Emperors, right? What was, so far, kind of a shit show that luckily ended pretty quickly? Well, boy, do I have a treat for you, because 193 AD is also known as the Year of the Five Emperors. Could you fit so many into just one year? Call now and you get a bonus emperor. <laughs> 
The first of these, Pertinax, was killed by, you guessed it, the Praetorian Praetorian Guard, after trying to initiate reforms in their ranks that was super freaking obviously needed. Yeah. The Praetorian Guard then auctioned off the title of Emperor, but the guy who bought it was executed after like a month. Like, yeah, Pertinax is like, hmm, these guys keep killing emperors. I think I'm going to like do something about it and maybe change things so they can't do that in the future. (laughs) And they killed him and auctioned off the title of emperor to the highest bit, like zero shame. (laughs) Yeah, they don't care. They do not care. They do not care at all. Uh, then three dudes all basically fought for the title, and Severus came out of it, starting the Severan dynasty. He's in, the, uh, he's in the Harry Potter, right? Yeah, he's in the Harry Potter books, right? <laughs> he is in the Harry Potter books. <laughs> Septimus Severus was the first emperor born in Africa, in modern-day Libya. He was a strong and decent ruler, and when he died, his son Caracalla took over, who is most famous for his baths, the ruins of which can still be visited in Rome today. Two emperors later, we have Elagabalus, who is a notable figure in history, largely because they may also be one of the earliest transgender figures in history. Oh, that's interesting. There are three main historical sources, Cassius Dio, Herodian, and the Historia Augusta. The latter has the most obviously false stories, because remember, like, if you hated a dude, you just made up stories about how Mm -hmm. he was. So the two former ones are the best that exist, and neither Dio nor Herodian liked Elagabalus at all, so it's hard to know what's actually true and what's embellished to make them look bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Another problem is that Elagabalus came from the eastern part of the empire in Syria, and the idea that people from Syria were especially effeminate was like a common trope that they used as an insult at the time. So... So it's kind of hard to know. According to Cassius Dio, when a man referred to Elagabalus as a lord, they corrected him and told him to call them a lady. And also, there were reports that Elagabalus asked their physicians to give them an incision meant to be the equivalent of a woman's vagina. Mm. So I struggled over what pronouns to use for Elagabalus. But given the evidence from Cassius Dio, who says that when at court and conducting business, Elagabalus presented as a man, but when in private, they were much more feminine. On top of the fact that there is no real way to know if Elagabalus was truly transgendered or if the histories are just tropes that they took really far because they hated him. Yeah. I've chosen to go with the singular they. Yeah. But there is a very, very good chance that Elagabalus was like one of the earliest transgender figures in history. That's interesting. I had no idea. I've never heard of them. Mm Mm-mm. Yeah, well, they were declared emperor as a 14-year-old child, and let's be honest, no one should have put a 14-year-old in charge of the empire. Didn't we already we figure this just, out? Yeah, we, we, mean, we did already <laughs> figure this out. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it literally At just happened. At this point, we should know better. Yeah. When I was 14, I couldn't keep my Tamagotchi alive, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I could barely yeah. tell time on an analog clock. You know? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's... Too much. Who knows? Unfortunately, because of their flaunting of traditional gender roles and many Roman customs, as well as their open following of Syrian gods rather than Roman ones, Elagabalus was hated by nearly everyone in Rome and assassinated at 18. So that, yeah. 
From 235 to 285, there were 20 emperors, <gasps> and most died violent deaths. Oh my god, that's so many. So it seems to be like, it's you don't so want to be emperor, No, you want to be in the Praetorian Guard. Yeah, that's where you want to yeah. keep your head on your shoulders, right? Yeah, exactly. Wow. Oh gosh. So this period is known as the crisis of the third century. And honestly, it's a freaking miracle that the Roman Empire comes out of this alive. Oh During this time, the Goths and the Alemanni began invading along both the Rhine and the Danube. And Rome also faced cons- constant threats from the Sassanid Empire in the east, who are the successors to the Parthians. Oh. The year 238 would become known as, wait for it, the year of the Six. Six. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, things aren't getting better. Oh my god. So of these 20 emperors, let's go over some of the more interesting oh stories. Sure. Valerian was captured by the Sassanid Emperor Empire, who kept him as a prisoner of war, thrilled with themselves that they actually managed to capture a Roman emperor, and they paraded him around in court. When Valerian died the following year, the Sassanids had his body stuffed so they could keep him around. Oh, my God. You know, as you do with your coolest prisoners. <laughs> totally normal stuff. I'm kind of picturing them with, like, a, like a net, like, that he walked across in the woods, like a Bugs Bunny oh, yeah. trap, and they caught him, and they're like, <laughs> Sw- swing we got him, up. him! Yeah. And then they weakened and burned him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the guys from the Roman Republic are like, have you no shame? You should have killed yourself rather than letting yourself be captured. Exactly. Like, it was a big thing that they actually managed to capture a Roman emperor. Jeez. Like, it, it was a big thing. And I guess they decided a year wasn't enough time to, like, get the full value out of it. So they just stuffed him instead. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Philip the Arab is a notable emperor because he was actually prefect of the Praetorian Guard, huh. or their leader. And while no one knows exactly how his predecessor died, I mean, you probably don't have to think about it that hard to figure out what the most likely story is at this point. So he was the first Praetorian Guard prefect who became emperor. It's surprising it took that long, you know? Yeah, honestly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Karis... Another short-lived emperor was likely murdered while on campaign by his generals, but when they told his army what had happened, they told the army that he was struck by lightning. And they're like, see, Jupiter obviously hated him. <laughs> like, that's he had to die. Clearly, yeah. So it's probably not true that Karis died <laughs> by a lightning strike, but it's a funny story. <laughs> However... From 270 to 275, Aurelian ruled, and he was probably the only actually good emperor in this 50-year period. He basically single-handedly took control of all of the issues that Rome faced over those five years. He expelled the invaders that made it into northern Italy. He defeated the Goths in the Balkans south of the Danube and decided to abandon Dacia, deciding it was too hard to defend, then conquered the Palmyrene Empire. So it's time for another side note. Mm. The Palmyrene Empire was named for its capital, Palmyra, which is basically in the middle of the Syrian desert now. And, well, it was. It's not there anymore. And ruled by Queen Zenobia, mostly through her young son. It stretched from the eastern half of Turkey down the Mediterranean coast of the Middle East and through to modern Egypt. The empire only lasted about a year, but Zenobia was a pretty cool badass in her own right. Mm. Nice. Like nice. Yeah. She was pretty awesome. 
So once the Palmyrene Empire was defeated, Aurelius turned his attention to the other end and defeated the Gallic Empire. Anyway, this good reign by a good ruler was cut short when one of his administrators told a lie about a minor issue. Uh Aurelian was known to be super strict, so worried about his punishment, the administrator created a false document showing that Aurelian was going to execute a number of his top people and showed that document to the top people in question, including a whole bunch of the Praetorian Guard, who obviously immediately murdered him. (laughs) Jeez. There's also evidence that Aurelian's wife, Ulpina Severina, ruled the empire in her own right for a while after his death before Tacitus was elected his replacement, although she was never declared emperor. Hmm. So after Aurelius's death, things went back to being not great for about (laughs) 10 years until Diocletian took over in 284 AD. Diocletian pretty quickly realized that there was too much strife in the empire for all of it to be in control sorry, in control of one person, and that things destabilized too much when that one person was inevitably murdered. So he brought in three co-emperors, giving each one of them control of one corner of the empire so they could focus on putting out fires as they came up in their individual regions. Okay. Constantine was also well known for being a major persecutor of the Christians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. After about 20 years, in 305, Diocletian retired, making him the first Roman emperor to not die in office. <laughs> right. 300 years later. I was going to say, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, are, we are now like 330-ish years into it, and they have all died in they office. They have all died in office. That's <laughs> a really high mortality rate, yeah, that again, job. Yes. Why would anyone want to be an emperor? You're just bound to get murdered in a terrible way i mean i guess you're rich you were lucky if you got to die of natural causes (laughs) that that was your retirement package your golden parachute a natural death (laughs) um so he moved to a palace he had built in split in modern croatia where he would grow cabbages and watch everything he had built go to hell in a handbasket before <laughs> dying possibly by suicide in 311. Oh my god. At least he got so, those cabbages though. I mean, that's all, you retired- got. That's all we had in Croatia, you know? <laughs> cabbages, cabbages and potatoes. That's true, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Retirement, possibly not the greatest idea. <laughs> yeah. The Tetrarchy Diocletian had built fell apart after he retired. Basically, as soon as he left, the three emperors and their sons that were left went... So now we fight to the death to see who gets control all this shit by ourselves, right? Yeah? Cool. The guy who came out of this unscathed was Constantine, who had famously turned the Roman Empire Christian, which must have just been seriously great for the seriously seriously anti-Christian Diocletian (laughs) to hear in his retirement. Anyway, Constantine was famous for having God come to him in a dream and tell him he would win at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. This is a bridge outside of Rome, where Constantine battled not some Gothic hordes or Sassanid invaders, as you might imagine, but it was actually against the son of one of Diocletian's co-emperors. Just straight up civil war. Constantine was also known for building an imperial palace in the city of Byzantium and renaming it after himself, and the name Constantinople would stick for about a thousand years Mm -hmm. before it was changed to Istanbul. 
The new palace's establishment also shows that over time, the city of Rome itself was becoming less and less important in the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to explore the topic too deeply here, because if I went into all the little workings of the <laughs> empires, we'd be here for days. <laughs> but as time went on, the major city's power began to drop, and the Senate's power and influence went along with it. Mm-hmm. In 313, Constantine developed the Edict of Milan, which made the persecution of Christianity and any other religion in the empire illegal. Hmm. It also returned to the church its confiscated property. Constantine was baptized just before his death in 337. He put off his baptism for as long as possible because at the time it was considered that your sins only began accumulating when you were baptized. So that way he could sin as much as he wanted. And then by being baptized essentially on his deathbed, he couldn't really do all that much sinning before death, therefore practically guaranteeing entry into heaven. Loophole. Yeah, loophole. That's a big one. No word on whether or not that worked out for him. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, Constantine left the empire to his sons, splitting it into three parts. And they, in an absolutely shocking turn of events, Immediately started fighting one another for both <laughs> people. This cycle would continue for the next half century, and the last emperor to fully control the Roman Empire as a single entity would be Theodosius, who died in 395. By 400, the Roman Empire was permanently divided between east and west in four prefectures. Ultimately, this was because the empire's finances were no longer great, thanks to years of mismanagement, a few, and thanks to a few unfortunate plagues. The population had dropped enough that one man simply could no longer raise the armies that were required to guard the whole empire. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So, you heard it here, folks. Pandemics literally led to the downfall of the Roman Empire. So wear your masks. Yeah, wear your mask, everybody. Yeah. Damn, wash oh my your hands. Gosh. Germanic tribes, the Vandals and the Visigoths mainly, were constantly doing their part in attacking the empire, and Rome was just getting worse and worse and worse at defending from them. In 410, Alaric, king of the Visigoths, actually managed to make it to Rome and sack the city. It was the first time this had happened in 800 years and demoralized an already very demoralized Roman population. Attila the Hun also did some pretty good Mm -hmm. damage to the empire, mainly through demanding a ton of money so that he wouldn't actually attack them. (laughs) And because they couldn't handle the Huns attacking, they just paid him all the money. So they also had no money at all. Uh, Still, also as the Huns spilled into Europe, a number of barbarians, mainly the Thervingi, the Sarmatians, and the Goths, spilled into the Roman Empire as they tried to attempt to run from the attacking Huns. But rather than embracing these so-called barbarians and using them to increase the army and tax base, the Roman Empire did their best to alienate them so that they never developed a loyalty to Rome. Hmm. And so after the Huns collapsed, they left a power vacuum and the Goths stepped in, taking the opportunity to attack and Rome had nobody to call for to help them. Hmm. (laughs) So in 476 AD, the emperor Romulus Augustulus was deposed by a barbarian general named Odoacer. And this is considered to be the end of the Western Roman Empire and where I'm ending our story today. The Eastern Empire would continue under the name the Byzantine Empire, Mm -hmm. and the Holy Roman Empire was just its own separate thing, a collection of unified groups in mainly modern Germany and Italy from 800 to 1806. 
basically it shows how strongly the men in power in Europe still looked at the Roman Empire because they went, cool, I want us to pretend to be that again (laughs) and took the name but made it a wee bit more Christian. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So some scholars consider the Byzantine Empire to simply be a continuation of the Roman Empire Mm -hmm. and mark the end of it as being 1453, the year the Byzantine Empire fell to the Ottomans. But 476 CE is the generally accepted year. Of the the fall of Rome. So there you go. Yeah. The Goths did it. Yeah. They did. The Goths did it. But also the Romans were very much. <laughs> yeah, they did it to <laughs> themselves. Let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was amazing. I felt like I took a real oh. journey through time and space. Some of those <laughs> names, too. Oh, they're great. They're great. I'm going to name my kid that. Germanicus. 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 Caligula. No, no that would be don't bad. Name Julie. No, yeah. no, don't do that. Not many kids named Nero out there, either. Yeah, no. Although... Mm, it's only four letters, and I could definitely see a Pittsburgh mom calling their kid Nero. I'm just saying. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know. Hannah, thank that you was, so much. It was amazing. That was so good. She it covered. Was, it was my pleasure. I, I'm centuries. glad you enjoyed it. Literal centuries. It's amazing. So <laughs> I hear that you have a quiz for us. I do have a quiz for you. So my quiz is called Vani. Vidi Vici, a quiz on wine, people with the initials VD, and Vichy France. Take it away. So now technically in ancient Rome, those words would have been pronounced Weni, Weedy, Weechi, as the V was pronounced the way we say W, but that sounds ridiculous and I refuse to do it. Good for you. I had no idea. I didn't know that either. That's interesting. Also, if I did it that way, it was going to be a quiz on small things and plants, but I didn't have anything for Weechi, so. (laughs) That's fine. Anyway, here's your quiz. Question one. This 1993 graduate from Juilliard was the first African-American woman to win the Triple Crown of Acting, a Competitive Academy Award, Tony, and Emmy in an acting category. While her Tony came from her role in the play Fences, and she later won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for the same role in the movie adaptation, you may know her better as the lawyer Annalise Keating. Who is this VD? Question 2. We all love to drink wine, but what about the other components that go into the bottle? The Whistler Tree, the oldest cork oak in the world, is located in the Alentejo region of what country best known for its port wines, which generally come from its Douro Valley? Question 3. This marshal was in charge of the French government in Vichy, France, the free zone and administrative center of the French Empire during the Second World War. He was known as Le Lion de Verdun, or the Lion of Verdun, and if you change one letter in his name, it turns into a French slang word for whore that's more commonly just used the way we would say the F word. Question 4. This famous VD was the first English child born in a New World English possession in the lost colony of Roanoke. On top of having many places named for her, including a county in North Carolina, Her name was used to sell many products, including the first wine to be sold in the United States after the end of Prohibition. Who is this famous VD? Question 5. 
Vichy France was technically in charge of metropolitan France, French Algeria, the protectorates of Morocco and Libya, and the rest of the French Empire at the time. In fact, only one region in France was placed under direct administration by the Germans. Name this region on the French-German border, which the two countries have fought over since the Franco-Prussian War. An alternative name for a common German dog breed is derived from the first part of the region's name, and a popular egg-based pie is named for the second part. Question 6. Also known as Syrah, what is the most important wine grape in Australia known for its rich chocolatey flavour? Question 7. This VD was a tight end in the NFL for the 49ers, Broncos, and Redskins before he retired in 2019. While he co-led the NFL in touchdown receptions in 2009, He's better known for catching the game-winning touchdown pass between the 49ers and the New Orleans Saints, referred to as the Catch-3. Who is this famous VD? Question 8. The French Republican motto, Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, Liberty, Equality, Brotherhood, was replaced by the Vichy government with a new motto, Travail, Famille, Patrie. What does this new motto translate to? Question 9. Equivalent to 24 standard 750 milliliter bottles of wine, holding 18 liters, what is the name of the largest standard bottle of wine named for a biblical king who built the first temple in Jerusalem and according to Jewish tradition is considered to be the author of three books in the Bible? Question 10. A bonus wine question. This one is multiple choice. How much is a buttload of wine? Is it A, 12 gallons, B, 126 gallons, C, 256 gallons, or D, 1200 gallons? I'll give you a few minutes to think about it. And then we'll be back with answers.
These, these are, are very good. These are excellent questions. These are excellent oh, questions. Thank you. All right. Lay them on us. All right. Question one. This 1993 graduate from Juilliard was the first African-American woman to win the Triple Crown of Acting, a competitive Academy Award, Tony, and Emmy in an acting category. Well, one of her two Tonys came from her role in the play Fences, and she later won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for the same role in the movie adaptation, you may know her better as the lawyer Annalise Keating. Who is this VD? See esteemed the beautiful the enormously talented viola davis that is absolutely correct yes good job (laughs) so on top of the oscar she is the first and only african-american actress to win a primetime emmy for outstanding lead actress in a drama for the role of annalise keating in how to get away with murder her first tony award came for her portrayal of tanya in king headley the two before the one for Fences. Also, you know the first scene in Ocean's Eleven when George Clooney is being interrogated by a parole officer whose voice we hear but never appears on screen? That's Viola Davis's <gasps> voice, although she is uncredited for that. Oh my God, I just got chills. Uh, I was like, I, I missed know. a Viola Davis performance. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I read that and I was like, I have to include that in my answer <laughs> that everything needs some Ocean's Eleven trivia. Uh, so good. I got, We should watch it again. <laughs> yeah. We'll watch Ocean's Eleven, Ocean's 13, and then end it with Ocean's 8. Yeah. We will completely skip Ocean's 12. Yeah, it's not good. Ocean's 12 should always be skipped. Yeah, exactly. I'm fully on board with that. <laughs> Question two. We all love to drink wine, but what about the other components that go into the bottle? The Whistler tree, the oldest cork oak in the world, is located in the Alentejo region of what country, best known for its port wines, which generally come from its Duoro Valley? Would you would you spell Alentejo? Yeah. Alentejo. <laughs> a-l-e-n-t-e-j-o now i know that portugal is really known for its corks yeah so i was i was thinking either portugal or spain okay um so i think probably i'm gonna go with portugal i think portugal is probably a better choice right all right well we'll we'll guess portugal yeah it is portugal nice job nice job the Whistler tree, named for the songs of the birds that live in it, is over 40 feet tall with a trunk diameter of over 12 feet. Oh it was voted European Tree of the Year in 2018, <laughs> because that's apparently a thing. And since 1820, its cork has been harvested over 20 times. In 1991, its harvest yielded over 2,600 pounds of cork, which by itself produced over 100,000 cork stoppers. A single harvest of Whistler tree yields more cork than most cork oaks yield in their entire lifetimes. That's amazing. No wonder it won Tree of the Year. And it's only one Tree of the Year once. I know. It should be winning Tree of the Year every year. Defending champion. I know. Tree of the Year. year, Whistler Tree. Damn. (laughs) Name me a better tree. You can't. (laughs) (laughs) Question three. This marshal was in charge of the French government in Vichy, France, the free zone and administrative center of the French Empire during the Second World War. 
He was known as Le Lion de Verdun, or the Lion of Verdun, and if you change one letter in his name, it turns into a French slang word for whore that's most, more commonly used just the way we would say the F word. Now, I'm going to leave this to you, Joel, because I knew you're you going to leave it to me. I mean, because I can't, I mean, I saw you massaging the space between your eyebrows. Yeah. The Lion of Verdun, man, that, like, there's something in there. Yeah. Well, let's let's reverse engineer it. What are some French words for fuck? Um, that also mean whore. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, putain. You would, you would not know it as as being whore. Okay. Like, okay. Oh, okay. You would, you would, would only be... know it in the context of using it the way we would use the f word. Okay. 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 <sighs> In Italian, it's fanculo, but that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man. I, I know. Um, <laughs> so, you know how when, like, you start learning a language, a language yeah. and then you start looking up swear words, words. And yeah, then absolutely. finally your teachers are like, okay, well, you can't say this phrase when you're in a place because it certainly means a different thing. Yeah. So there's certain parts of France where you can't say baiser, which is... Um, to kiss because in certain parts of France it means yeah. to do it. The other. Wink. Uh, so there's there's things like that that just like stuck in my head, but I cannot think of, I can't come up with anything okay. right now. Hey, that's okay. If I, I can't give either. You, if I give you the word for whore, it is pretend. <laughs> uh-huh. 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 Can you then get to the marshal who is in charge from there? I can't. I can't. Okay, it's the Maréchal Philippe Pétain. Pétain. Ah. And yeah. again, Pétain is the French word for her. But we we don't use it like that's what it means. Mm-hmm. But it's you would literally only use it the way we use the F word. Like yeah. Yeah. you wouldn't you, you wouldn't call somebody a Pétain because yeah. technically you're calling them a horror, but it's just yeah. like you're calling them a fuck. Like. Yeah. <laughs> Fils de pute is a son of a bitch. Oh, fils de pute. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Or son of a whore, but. <laughs> so the Maréchal Philippe Pétain is also France's oldest head of state as he was also already 84 years old in 1940. After the war, he was convicted of treason and sentenced to death, but they commuted the sentence because he was so old and he died in prison in 1951. After World War I, he was considered a national hero, and boy, oh boy, did he ever blow that reputation by becoming a Nazi collaborator. (laughs) Nazis will get you every time. Yeah, every time. So question four. This famous Fidi was the first English child born in a New World English possession in the lost colony of Roanoke. On top of having many places named for her, including a county in North Carolina, her name was used to sell many products, including the first wine to be sold in the United States after the end of Prohibition. Who is this famous Vd? You got it, Lord. Uh, that's Virginia Dale. It is Virginia Dare. <laughs> I'm proud of you because I feel like I brought it up like two or Numerous three times, times on the podcast. She has asked finally, a question. Finally <laughs> stuck. <laughs> finally, like at least two or three times she's been like, who was the first? <laughs> like, Come on, think back. So I'm glad Isn't I got that it. Isn't just the it. best feeling though when it comes up like multiple times and you miss it every time and you get it and you're like, yes, thank you, brain. <laughs> I'm a genius now. Yeah. 
So question five. Vichy France was technically in charge of metropolitan France, French Algeria, the protectorates of Morocco and Libya, and the rest of the French Empire at the time. In fact, only one region in France was placed under direct administration by the Germans. Name this region on the French-German border, which the two countries have fought over since the Franco-Prussian War. An alternative name for a common German dog breed is derived from the first part of the region's name, and a popular egg-based pie is named for the second part. It's Alsace-Lorraine. Correct. It is Alsace-Lorraine. The Alsatian is another name for a German shepherd used officially in the UK from the end of World War I until 1977, and quiche Lorraine is objectively the most delicious flavor of quiche, (laughs) traditionally made with Gruyere cheese and bacon. Also, fun fact, Alsace-Lorraine is the only part of France that doesn't technically have separation of church and state, as laïcité, as it's known in French, happened in 1905 when Alsace-Lorraine still belonged to Germany. It wasn't until the end of World War II that the territory was re-given to France. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny when you like see like maps in like a you know, antique store or whatever, and it doesn't include that as part yeah. of France. It's you know, yeah. fun, to, yeah. fun to look at. Yeah, you can tell where it's yeah. from. Mm-hmm. Yep. Question six, also known as Syrah, what is the most important wine grape in Australia known for its rich chocolatey flavor? It's a uh, Shiraz. It is Shiraz. <laughs> I didn't know that. You're like, yeah. I did. <laughs> mm, yep, I'm going to let you say it. <laughs> Shiraz is also the name of the fifth largest city in Iran. And historically speaking, they also had a Shiraz wine, but that one is completely unrelated to the modern version, which originated in southeastern France and is most widely grown for wine in Australia and South Africa. Mm. Question seven. This VD was a tight end in the NFL for the 49ers, Broncos, and Redskins before he retired in 2019. While he co-led the NFL in touchdown receptions in 2009, he's better known for catching the game-winning touchdown pass in the 2012 Super Bowl between the 49ers and the New Orleans Saints, referred to as the Catch-3. Who is this famous VD? You know, you know, me have this one too. Uh, oh yeah, you can have this one too, Julia. <laughs> oh, you want to say it at the same time? Yeah. How about we do that? Okay, okay ready? We'll do it at three. One, two, two three. three. Vernon Davis. Davis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It, what was that? He didn't Vernon even look Davis. at my mouth when I was doing I it. Either. I was just, <laughs> I was just going by ear. I was just going by psychic connection. You know what? I know you had it. Thank I knew you. you had it, Thanks. <laughs> Very obvious. You you totally knew it. I had him on a fantasy football team a couple of times, mm-hmm. and I felt like every time I put him in, he did absolutely nothing. And mm-hmm. so then, I, out of spite, I would bench him, and then he would get like twenty four points that game. That's he knew it. How my fantasy football <laughs> management works. <laughs> well, he was named to the Pro Bowl twice and won Super Bowl fifty with the Denver Broncos. So, question eight. The French Republican motto, Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, Liberty, Equality, Brotherhood, was replaced by the Vichy government with the new motto, Travail, Famille, Patrie. What does this new motto translate to? Work, family, country. Yes. Ugh. Good job. <laughs> Ugh, I like the other one better. Yikes. <laughs> it's more accurately, Patrie is more like homeland mm-hmm. than country exactly sure, yeah, yeah. like it's 
Yeah, like it, it's like your fatherland or your motherland, depending yeah. on whether your country is considered masculine or feminine. Sure. Uh, the motto originally belonged to a nationalist group and then a nationalist political party in France that came into being after World War One, and is far inferior to the true Republican motto. <laughs> mm. However, Mother's Day was written into the French calendar during this time to honor the family part. Sure. Lucky them. <laughs> Question nine. Equivalent to 24 standard 750 milliliter bottles of wine, holding 18 liters, what is the name of the largest standard bottle of wine, named for a biblical king who built the first temple in Jerusalem, and according to Jewish tradition, is considered the author of three books in the Bible? I mean, it's, the, according to the biblical thing, the only thing I can think of is Solomon. Mm, but that's, that's not, not a wine. A, that's not a wine size. No. You got Jeroboam. That might be it. And then you got Methuselah, but I think Methuselah's smaller. Yeah. Because I, I always thought Methuselah was the big one, and I was always wrong. Jeroboam, Nebuchadnezzar. Ooh, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Ooh. There's another one that's long like Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar? He was a king. I don't know anything about Jeroboam. Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar. Let's go with Nebuchadnezzar. It is Solomon. Oh, no! <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's totally fine. I didn't I'm think it was sorry. a wine. I never I even didn't, heard of that I as didn't, a wine thing. I didn't think it was a wine thing either. A Solomon, which can also known sometimes as a melchoir. Oh. So, okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So all bottles that hold over three liters of wine are named after biblical kings. Mm -hmm. The smallest bottle, 375 mils, is called a demi or a half since it holds half the liquid of a standard bottle. A double-sized bottle, holding one and a half liters, is called a magnum, and a three-liter bottle is called a double magnum. After that, you have a Jeroboam, which is equivalent to six standard bottles of wine, but if we're talking sparkling wine, a Jeroboam is equivalent to four bottles. Mm. For sparkling wine, a Rehoboam is equivalent to six standard <laughs> bottles. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then you have an imperial, also known as Methuselah, which ah. is equivalent to eight standard bottles. A Salamanzar, equivalent to 12 standard bottles. A Balthazar, equivalent to 16 standard bottles. A Nebuchadnezzar, equivalent to 20 standard bottles. And finally, the Solomon, equivalent to 24 standard bottles of wine or a whole case or two whole cases. Oh my gosh. That's could you, That's you can't pick up that bottle. Who's picking up that bottle? You can't pick it up. No, it's impossible. <laughs> I think it's probably <laughs> impossible to pick up when it's empty, let alone full. How, do you, how would you pour it without spilling is exactly. my question. Like, you would need a ladle. You'd be you would holding it above a... your head. <laughs> it's silliness is what it is. That's what it is. It really is. We, like should, just, we should go to Living Roots and see. Bottles of wine. Yeah. We should see what they would be willing to do. Yeah. Can you, how big how of a How big bottle? can you? <laughs> exactly. So question 10, a bonus wine question. This one is multiple choice. How much is a buttload of wine? Is it A, 12 gallons, B, 126 gallons, C, 256 gallons, or D, 1,200 gallons? So it's a big barrel. Yeah, yes, I do know I this. I think it's bigger than 12 gallons. Yeah, I was going to go with 126. <gasps> Me too. Ooh, okay. Let's say that. B. It is 126 gallons. 
good job. <laughs> so a butt was a standard cask size used by merchants as they transported wine and other alcoholic beverages before the metric system came along and standardized everything in countries that aren't America. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The word butt actually comes from the French word butt, meaning boot, and has nothing to do with rear ends etymologically, unfortunately. <laughs> And so that's my quiz. Good job, you guys. Oh, Thank that was you. wonderful. Hannah, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for talking to us about Roman history. Thank you for giving us that incredible quiz. I just knew well, it. I knew we would end Guesttober with feel, a bang. I feel like I'm truly in the presence of like the podcast queens at the oh, moment. So thank you for having me. Kind. It was so much fun. That's so nice. So nice. And the nicest guest. <laughs> <laughs> All those boys. Yeah, we really had too many men. We really did. Nothing against Sam no. or Eric or we're kidding. Or Ryan, no, we loved we're, everybody. We this loved month. everybody. A solidly great guest tober. Yes. Before we say goodbye, Hannah, do you want to plug anything on the podcast? Like maybe your newest release. Yes. So if you'd like to check out the book that was inspired by Lauren's wonderful episode on poisons potion for your thoughts the fifth book in my pacific north witches series is available starting tomorrow <gasps> thank you so much you to guys. check it out well we'll post a link on twitter yes. and we'll post a link on facebook as Absolutely. well um so keep an eye out for that thank you again hannah uh this was thank awesome you. you did an incredible i learned job. so much i learned so much too this is great um, and thank you uh, so much for listening, everybody. Thank you for participating in Guesttober with us. Yes. And thanks. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe. Yes. Ooh, we haven't had sets to that in a while. Um, <laughs> yeah, forgot, forgot yeah. what the order was. Yeah. Tell a friend about this podcast. And thank you so much to everybody who has re- left reviews. It's, yes. Um, again, we sometimes if we're having a bad day, we just go and we read our, our latest reviews on iTunes mm-hmm. and it you know, it, it helps a little. It helps a little. It, it Everybody's having a rough time, so every little bit <laughs> helps. So thank you so much who have helped us uh, with those kind, kind words. So um, yeah, thanks so much for listening, guys. Yeah, we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.